In most Christian churches, we rarely hear about feminine images of God. Due to a variety of historical circumstances and social influences, God's feminine side just doesn't get the attention it deserves. So much so that many Christians don't realize that their scripture contains any number of feminine metaphors for God. A mother giving birth, a mother bear guarding her cubs, a hen sheltering her chicks with her wings, a midwife attending to the difficult birth of chaos and penning it up. Likewise, stories with female protagonists are often left out of readings during formal worship and ritual. Our guest today has set out to address this imbalance by placing women and the divine feminine at the center. This is Logosish. Today we discuss the women's lectionary and how modern Christian traditions are learning to make better use of their sacred stories that focus on the feminine. We've got another episode here today. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Uh, what's going on with you guys? I think I'm doing pretty good right now. Garrett, how about you? It sounds like you're having a better week than the rest of us. Yeah, you're on that vacation I threatened to um, crash last week. Yeah, we're hanging out at the beach in or Wrightsville Beach in North Carolina. And so we're, we're really close. We've been to the ocean almost every day and it's been really great. How about you, Brian? Uh, so this week I am going through a training to be a simplified accountable leadership structure trainer. Uh, wow. And that's a way uh, my district superintendent said I was going to it and he was paying for it. So there's a lot of big words. Is there a simpler way to express that? Um, no. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So, uh, so, so that might be, it might be a form of a single board or a one board kind of model, but it has a lot higher focus on accountability. I just, I just get a kick out of it because didn't you use the word simplified in the name of the training, and it was like five words in a row? Yes, I did. <laughs> I love the irony. <laughs> Well, guys, let's um, let's jump right in because I am very excited about today's conversation. Today we have with us Ashley Wilcox. Uh, Ashley Wilcox has written a women's lectionary. Ashley, can you introduce yourself for us today? Hi, everyone. Uh, it's good to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. I am Ashley Wilcox, and I am a Quaker minister, a lawyer, and I teach preaching. And I'm originally from Anchorage, Alaska. And so I'm now living in Atlanta. I'm quite a ways from home. And I grew up there in the evangelical church, in a pretty charismatic church and a private Christian school. And so church was kind of my life as a child. Um, and I like to say as an evangelical, there was a lot of preaching, but there weren't a lot of women preaching. And now I am a Quaker where there are a lot of women ministers, but not a lot of preaching. And so, of course, I wrote a book about preaching. And I came 
out of the evangelical tradition, like many people in our generation, uh, because of the argument over uh, same-sex marriage and rejecting queer people. And so as a teenager, I was just not on board with the way my church was going, and I left. For several years in college, I didn't go to church at all. And then I went to law school and I was miserable. I was so unhappy in law school. And I thought it would be good to find a church community, to find other people to be in community with. And I found Quakers there. I had an aunt and uncle who were Quaker and they said that they thought it would be a good fit for me. And so I went over and um, law school made me a Quaker. And then I um, spent several years working as a lawyer and felt this call to ministry during that time. And so I was working all the time and then doing ministry all the time, which was completely unsustainable. And so I went to Candler School of Theology, and now I do about half and half. I work part-time as a lawyer and do ministry the rest of the time. Just in case folks don't know, what makes being a Quaker distinct from other um, Christian groups in the U.S.? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that is unusual for Quakers is the amount of time we spend in silence. So our traditional worship is to sit together in silence and wait for God to speak through anyone in the room. The expectation is that God will speak to people directly and through anyone. And so anyone can give ministry in the Quaker tradition. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, every time I... I just want to learn a lot more about Quakers. So maybe we could come back one time and we could just learn about Quakers. (laughs) Uh, So the women's lectionary, can you tell us what that is? Actually, we should probably, we're trying to, this podcast is supposed to be accessible to anyone with any amount of religious education. And before I went to seminary, I honestly did not know what the revised common lectionary was. So maybe uh, let's talk about what the lectionary is and then um, why, what, moved you to write the women's lectionary. Sure. And a lot of you probably have more familiarity with the Revised Common Lectionary than I do because I don't come from a tradition that has a lectionary. Uh, So a lectionary simply is a collection of Bible readings for the church calendar. So the readings that you hear on a Sunday morning. And when people hear the word lectionary, most often they think of the Revised Common Lectionary, which is a three-year calendar of readings that most mainline denominations use at this point. So I started working on my own lectionary, the Women's Lectionary, which is the title of my book, a few years ago. Um, and at the at that point, I was pastoring a church that I founded with a friend of mine called Church of Mary Magdalene. And we um, had that church going for two years. And it was my first time as a weekly preacher. Up until that point, I had been, you know, guest preaching mostly, and it's really different do a one-off versus preaching every week or several times a month in one location. And like many preachers, I turned to the Revised Common Lectionary to find preaching texts. And so I would use that or do um, sermon series. So I found that people in my church really responded to when I or others preached on women in the Bible. And they don't come up all that often in the Revised Common Lectionary. And so we would do some sermon series on women in the Bible. And I told my partner that I was feeling 
torn um, between preaching from the Revised Common Lectionary and preaching um, on women in the Bible. And he said, well, why don't you write your own lectionary? And this idea just like sparked my imagination. And I um, spent the weekend, it was the Thanksgiving weekend, putting together a lectionary of text to see if I could do it, to have a full year of texts from the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament on women in the Bible and feminine images of God. And I did. Um, I put it together and I was like, you could preach for an entire year um, on just women in the Bible. And so I liked this idea. I wanted to start using it. And then I went in to meet with Ted Smith, who is the preaching professor, one of the preaching professors at Candler School of Theology. And he suggested that I write commentaries on each of these texts. And so I did. And I was using these um, texts to preach at Church of Mary Magdalene and then using the sermons to write the commentaries. And so this project just built on itself. And I spent a couple years turning this into a book and it is now available for pre-order from Westminster John Knox Press. That's yeah. really exciting. Being a weekly preacher, it, it is really hard to stay, stay motivated and continue and sustain throughout the entire year. And I often fall back on the lectionary if I, you know, in between series or, or, or things like that. And one of the things that I love to preach, especially, is on images from scripture that are not always touched upon. So a lot of women in scripture, I love to focus on because it shows us more, or at least it shows me more of a fullness of the human experience. And it's not just one thing over another. I'm really excited. I'll definitely be a uh, look for it. Yeah, we will post a link to that uh, somewhere that we post things. <laughs> How about all the places that we post things? We'll post it all the places that we post things. So Ashley, um, one of the things that I wanted us to focus on a little bit was just a conversation about both the stories about women that feature, you know, major female protagonists in the the Bible and in Christian scripture, uh, and also images of the divine feminine, because you know the the idea of God being depicted with female imagery is often sidelined in a lot of traditions, and it can seem very foreign to folks in, in certain Christian denominations, even though it's in the book. And, you know, theoretically, if you're reading the book regularly, you should be picking up on that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, so one of my favorite uh, feminine images of God in the Bible is in Isaiah 42, 14, where it says, now I will cry out like a woman in labor, I will gasp and pant. And so it's this image of God giving birth and crying out like a woman in labor. And one of the things I love about this image is that it really changed my understanding of creation and God creating the world, that it's not just this like tidy step-by-step -step creation that we see in the first creation narrative, that it's like God giving birth, like of God being a woman. And there are other images in this passage, Isaiah 42, like God being the one who created the heavens and stretched them out. And that reminded me of like how a woman's body stretches when she gives birth. And it's this like messy, awesome, different approach to God as a mother. And another related one um, in the New Testament is Jesus as a mother hen in 
Luke 13, 34. He says, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And this is a description that comes out of the Psalms. Jesus is citing the Psalms that God will cover you with feathers and under God's wings, you will find refuge. And I love this gender bending image of God as a mother, Jesus as a mother, because we have so many images of God as a father, and that's important too, but we also see how God is a mother in our scriptures. So I'm just kind of like excited for this, for its capacity to to change our language about God and to kind of relieve the church of some toxic masculinity in a way and in, in only and mostly using like language about God that is so masculine and, and often violent in the process. So I, I'm excited for what this project in general can bring. So I'll be ordering my copy. Yeah, one of my favorite images uh, actually comes from Job, and it's it's God as a midwife, and it's it's Job talking about God as as midwife to chaos of all things. So talking about both participating, you, you know, like you have these these various images of God participating in the birth process creatively, both as like kind of coaxing something out, and then also being sort of the mother figure as well. That's that's really cool. Um, are there any other things that come to mind that just like stand out to you? One, and I don't have the verse right now, but it's from um, Hosea, is of God as an angry mother bear. And I think it might be Hosea 11. And I like that idea because so often the mother images are so nurturing and so like kind of caring. And this is a woman who is like justifiably angry and protecting her young. I love that imagery too, especially in contrast to earlier metaphors in Hosea, which really give me trouble. I think so often in the church, we portray women as when they're good, as they're they're docile, they're peaceful, they're et cetera. So having that imagery of like a mother bear that's going to gut you if you mess with her cubs is such a powerful image. And Nothing uh, like getting mauled by a bear. Like... <laughs> an angry bear because everybody knows what is you you don't mess with a mama bear with cubs but it's it's surprising how often I find that my parishioners don't know that this imagery is in there and I have a, a pastor friend up in Virginia and she recently pre she used uh, God as a metaphor or God as I don't remember which metaphor but a metaphor for God as a woman and she used it in service and she got a letter, an email from somebody saying, I really wish you would just stick to the Bible. <laughs> it's just like, it's literally in the Bible. <laughs> it didn't make this up. So Note, if you ever say you should stick to the Bible, I hope you have read the whole thing. <laughs> multiple times. Right. So uh, yeah, I think it's really important that we start using these images more and also maybe redeeming some of the images that we've heard preached poorly so many times, like the woman at the well. I love how Jesus engages with the woman at the well, treating her as a person and like a spiritually adept person. And they walk through this wonderful conversation. Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, Ashley, you know, as you were putting this together in particular, it, it sounded like you started off kind of wondering whether or not you would have enough material to fill up an entire book of this, this kind of material as you were 
giving sermon advice and preaching advice, you know, was there anything in particular that you kind of discovered along the way? And and what kind of benefits did you get from exploring these stories? Yeah, um, I found that the stories connected in ways that I wasn't expecting. And like, you might anticipate that because of the ways that other stories connect in the Bible. But so often when we hear stories about women in the Bible, we hear them in isolation. We don't hear them next to each other. And so something that I was just kind of fascinated by when I was writing this was the concept of lover at marriage and how the stories of that connected. And this seems like something that's so small, but it just like kept popping up in these stories about women. So what is leveret marriage? Just to help clarify that. Yeah. So leveret marriage comes from Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. And the basic idea is that if a man um, dies with no son, his brother shall marry his widow and their firstborn son will carry on the name of the man who died. So it's this law. It sounds pretty old fashioned. Um, and it, comes, it honestly just sounds gross. It sounds weird. It does. <laughs> But you can see what the purposes would be of leveret marriage to continue the man's name. And especially if you don't have a concept of heaven, then your name going forward is very important. That's how you live on after death and um, to protect his inheritance so that his son would get the inheritance and also to protect his widow so that she would have a husband to care for her after his death. So the first story that this comes up in is the story of Tamar, um, who is the daughter-in-law of Judah, and Judah, who is Joseph's brother. So this is a story that shows up in the middle of the Joseph story, which is very familiar, but Tamar never gets any airtime. And in that story, Tamar is married to Judah's son, and he dies. And so she marries the second son, and he dies. And then Judah refuses to give Tamar in marriage to his third son because he's afraid that he'll die. And so Tamar tricks her father-in-law. She pretends to be a prostitute and tricks him into impregnating her. And then he is going to have her put to death. And she points out that he is the father of the child and that she's just following this law of lover at marriage marriage to have a child to carry on the family name and he says she's more in the right than I so she has been the one following the law she's the hero of the story and this comes up again the story of lover of marriage in the story of Ruth which is much more familiar Ruth goes to Boaz and she says, I'm your next of kin. She's invoking this law of leveret marriage to say that he should marry her. But he says that there's someone closer in kin than him. And so he offers her to another man to marry her first as a birthright. And the other man doesn't want to marry Ruth. So Boaz does. But this is why at the end of Ruth, the women in the village say, a son has been born to Naomi because this is the son that would have been the son of her son who had died. So there's one more story of leveret marriage that I wanted to talk about. And this is Jesus. It comes up again in the New Testament. And this is the story where the Sadducees bring the question to Jesus of whether when a woman's husband dies and she successively marries six brothers in turn, who will she be married to in the afterlife? And the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection, so they were trying to trap Jesus. And they're citing this law of leveret marriage and saying that it would be ridiculous. A woman can't have seven husbands. But Jesus says that after the resurrection, people neither marry nor are given in marriage 
And so I hear that to say that there is no lever of marriage, there is no marriage, but it also suggests that after death, women won't need the protection of a husband or a son or a father. And so I wonder if Jesus is saying that there will be no patriarchy in the kingdom of heaven. And I really hope so. Me too. So let's talk patriarchy because um, it's it's a concept that can ca- sound kind of unfamiliar or often has multiple definitions depending on who you're talking to. And, you know, your your definition, especially in the chapter of the women's lectionary that you sent to us, I think was was very insightful as far as, you know, sort of reflecting on how can we read these stories from the Bible, which are set and make different assumptions about how society is, not necessarily always how it should be, but, you know, how how things just are right now, right? And how we can sit and read those stories and find meaning in them today when we live in a society with a very different set of assumptions, especially relating to the status and role of women and the, the degree of independence that women have today versus back then where often women and children were both treated as kind of property within the man's estate. Yeah. I mean, you can't read the Bible without dealing with patriarchy on some level. It's just woven into the text. And I see two main responses to that in preaching and in Christian circles. One is that this is God's will for the ordering of humanity, that, you know, you have patriarchy and um, men are in charge. Or the other response is often like, smash the patriarchy, just get rid of it entirely. And I don't think either really serves us in reading this text, because as we saw in the law of love or marriage, like patriarchy did solve some real problems. One is the problem of men's violence um, against each other over women. And another is like how to protect women in the society. And so if you have a patriarchal system, then women are mostly protected by their father or their husband or their son within the system. And that's not all bad, but it's not what we want now. And so I see looking at these texts, one thing that we see is the stories about women are often women that fall out of that structure, like Tamar. She was no longer protected by the patriarchy, and so she had to do something else um, to find that protection. And the my approach to this is to put patriarchy in its context, but also to suggest that it is a coping me- mechanism that we don't need anymore, that this is something that in our current culture, it used to serve us and it doesn't serve us. And so we need to find other ways to recognize the equality of people, that all people are created in the image of God, and to protect all people, including you know women and people of all genders. Right. And that is not going to look today like it did in um, biblical times. And uh, I think one of the most common places in the Bible that this comes up is when we get some lovely passages or that particular passage about divorce. And I have encountered people in ministry who have deep anxiety about getting divorced, even from very bad situations and feel that it is more holy or more desired by God to stay in a bad situation than to get divorced. 
forced. And that's just, that doesn't fit with the overarching narrative of the Bible. It doesn't fit with the liberative uh, desires of Jesus that we see time and time again. Uh, Yeah, it it just, it's not the same sort of thing. So while in that time, uh, forbidding divorce was a, a way to protect women from being abandoned and thrown out, now it's the, the opposite can be true. That biblical passage can be very misused to keep women in bad situations. Yeah. So one of my favorite like passages, like to go over with folks who are kind of coming out of a more evangelical tradition is kind of the story in Genesis two, right? So it's the creation of a helper and God's pursuit so that man might not be by himself or herself human beings, earthlings probably is probably the best translation I've heard for that yet. Earthlings, I love that. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, that's what Adam means. It means dirt. So earthling sounds just fine. We just made it a proper noun. But in the process of God seeking a helper to create a helper, we, we see like not only a vision of like womanhood that is like a pinnacle of God's creation, we also see that that's the role that all human beings are supposed to have. Everyone needs a helper. Everyone needs a community to be in supportive relationships. So I think that's a really, you know, interesting passage to look at from that particular view. Unfortunately, that passage has also been used to, like, subjugate women and to, and is, and it's abused in that way. Yeah, I think it's really significant, too, that you bring that up, Brian, because, you know, one of the Gregories from way back when, you know, (laughs) before 500, uh, one of the Gregories, probably Nazianzus, um, has, you know, you know, he used that passage to talk about how all of humanity is related and interconnected, right? You know, it's, it's not about you know, subjugation, but it's about how we are sort of all born of the same processes and from sort of the same, you know, unified source, uh, which becomes very, very important when Christians later start talking about Jesus. And we're actually going to talk a little bit about this, I think, next week. But to talk about Jesus, you know, influencing humanity and and our well-being in some way shape or form early christian philosophers really needed humanity to all be from one source and you know that's one of the things you get from the hebrew scriptures is this you know unified source that you you kind of have this sense of you're able to go back to that we are all enmeshed in this this web of life together yeah, and it's interesting to hear people use uh, that piece of Genesis to uh, confirm their patriarchal views now, because the way it's framed in the text is that it, it is a bad thing. And, you know, it, that text is all about, we just preached on this, is largely about things breaking apart and broken relationships. So the opposite of that bad thing should be equality, right? <laughs> you're You're talking specifically about after the partner passage, you're talking about when the woman and the snake have their conversation, right? Yeah. And God says, party, you know, like, hey, you listen to your wife and also she's going to have pain and she's going to be subject to whatever you want and all that jazz. Well, I never said that part was helpful. (laughs) There are parts of the Bible that might be unhelpful. I didn't say that. I'm sorry. (laughs) Cut that out. (laughs) But they might be, but I mean, your point is correct. These are consequences. Mm -hmm. This is not God's original ordering for the world. Right. Yes. Ashley, I'm just curious as to, um, you know, because we're trying to make this as general as possible, and sometimes that's hard for us. 
as people who deal with the text all the time. What are some um, maybe less familiar passages uh, that you think are really helpful for folks to explore uh, that are specifically about women? Yeah, I mean, I think these Genesis stories are actually very good to review as stories because we have so much layered on top of them, so much meaning that we've made of them. But when you go back to them, like, they're so strange, <laughs> like, especially the second creation story in Genesis, it is a very weird story. And so if you take it at that level, I think like rereading it. And one of my hopes is that um, people go deeply into these texts and have a sense of mystery around them of reading the Bible as story instead of, um, you know, a rule book, um, because there is so much mystery in God and in the Bible. Are there any women in the Bible that you feel like we kind of have um, just done dirty too. I mean, just ruined with, with centuries of poor interpretation. Well, I mean, the obvious one is Mary Magdalene and I named my church after her. And it's just, it's so unfortunate because we've um, treated her badly in a lot of ways. Like one of the ways is that an early bishop uh, conflated several of the women in the Bible and um, Mary Magdalene was one of them. And so that's where we get the idea that she was a prostitute is because she was conflated with other women in the text. And that's not actually a description of her at any point. She um, was possessed by demons and then she was one of the women who followed Jesus and then every gospel puts her at the tomb. And so like, she was the apostle to the apostles. She was the first one that Jesus called to preach and the one who was there um, at the tomb when the others were hiding and afraid to go. And so I really, like, I don't want to talk about her in a way that um, shames sex workers, but also like the version of her that we have received is incorrect. Yeah, so I, I love like hearing that kind of Easter tomb story and recognizing that all of Christian history is really just one person to the next saying, this is where I've seen Jesus. Like, and, and it all started with her. Like, and that's a beautiful thing to think about. So we noticed uh, in the sample you sent us that the, one of the major features in the lectionary, at least for the, the first part of it, when you talk about the beginning of what be, would be normally the Christian calendar year, you know, the, the Christian calendar historically has sort of retold the story of Jesus over the course of the year. Um, and, you know, each year it begins usually early December, sometimes late November with the season of Advent, which is a season of preparation uh, before Christmas where we read the birth stories. And, and so I noticed that in, in your Advent cycle, you really tended to focus on a particular set of stories surrounding Mary in particular. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, so there is a lot about Mary um, in the beginning of Luke, and um, we tend to go straight to the journey and her giving birth. But one thing that was fascinating for me was the idea of God calling Mary as a prophet and, you know, God coming to Mary and asking her to do this thing. And like many of the prophetic narratives, she's like, who am I to do this? But then she receives the prophetic call and she has a sign, which is the child in her body. And then um, she goes from there to her relative, Elizabeth, who is also given prophetic speech. And so these two women, unexpectedly pregnant, are speaking prophetic 
directly to each other about the children in their own bodies. And I feel like this is such a beautiful image for our Advent time of waiting for Christ. Like they are waiting to give birth to these babies too. I used uh, Ashley's Advent readings from the women's lectionary this past year in preaching. As we mentioned before, the revised common lectionary is divided into three years. Uh, This past year was Matthew, which is a lot of apocalyptic reading, a lot of death and destruction. And because of where our community was and where I was personally, I was looking for an alternative to talk about. And these uh, preaching on this on these stories about Mary and Elizabeth and Mary's song. And my congregation responded so well and my soul responded, if I can be a little bit mystical, it was so powerful. And so I am super grateful to Ashley for those recommendations. And I recommend to any preachers, including you three gentlemen, to um, maybe uh, look at a year to, or a time of year to focus on this kind of story. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And um, one of the things that's really interesting, because I had just moved to my church this past July, and so I'm getting to know everything that they've done in the past and the studies that they've done. And a lot, they they did a church-wide study on Adam Hamilton's advent, and and he describes the, the physical grittiness of the travel of of mary and the hope and and the family uh to bethlehem uh and they were upset about it one of the women said that even though it would be tiring it seemed sort of insulting to them i always thought that was interesting in the fact that she valued women in such a way that they were physically tough and they could endure such things and i always thought that was sort of interesting so they never wanted to do that study again long story short um so i won't offer it but it's just i don't think i would ever receive that sort of feedback in a church that would regularly or wouldn't value women in in such a way that they have before in the past so i always thought that was an interesting way to view that story so ashley you mentioned that this whole project arose from um just the process of you know kind of preaching these women's stories in in your own church um can you talk a little bit about the benefits that that people that you felt like you saw a lot of people getting from being more inclusive and really kind of reincorporating these stories and and reframing these stories and and rescuing them from some of the you know the ridiculousness that has gone on over the past, what, two millennia? Yeah. People in the church, for one, like they wanted to hear the women's stories because they hadn't heard them very often before. And I think there were a number of people who had heard these stories of like, this is the meaning of the story, Uh, you know, like, we just have certain ways of telling the stories. And so I think retelling the stories, telling them in a, from a different perspective, paying attention to the women's perspective within the stories just really brought it to life. Like there's so much that is interesting and beautiful about the Bible that we just ignore if we keep telling the same stories over and over again. Sarah, I'm interested to hear more about your experience of preaching those stories uh, in your context, if you have any uh, anything else to share. So I do. This is not the podcast. To, we're going to talk about this at some point on the podcast, but um, it was just a very hard time personally for me surrounding women's issues 
in particular pregnancy and childbirth, I decided to preach these four Advent texts. And, um, and then on December 12th, I had a miscarriage and I was preaching through <laughs> these texts about pregnancy and childbirth. And at first I didn't know how I was going to do it. I had already set the calendar. I'd already written most of the sermons. Um, and then a week later, I found out that the miscarriage I had was an ectopic pregnancy, which was my second ectopic pregnancy. And that, that was December 19th, right before Christmas. So in a way, I was like, why? At first, I thought, why did I do this to myself? But the amount of strength that I felt from engaging Elizabeth and Mary's story and how powerful and strong and how much crap women have been going through for millennia really was so restorative for me. And I ended up feeling completely alive preaching those sermons despite what was going on. And actually, I mean, maybe more so because of what was going on in my personal life at that time. And uh, I, I mean, it really, I, I don't feel like I'm articulating this well enough, but it was powerful and uplifting where I thought it might've been triggering and disturbing. Does that make sense at all? Um, yeah, and totally. Yeah, sorry, that was really real. <laughs> no, it is, and I'm so sorry for your loss. And that's a very powerful story. I mean, it, it is your experiential story of pregnancy and the loss of that, which I think is it's so much to bring to those texts too. And so I'm glad that it was powerful and positive for you. And I think I could see that, like hearing the ways that they speak, um, is very absolutely. Powerful. Yeah, I mean, I mean, really, it, it did mean a lot to me. And I'm so glad I wasn't preaching apocalyptic texts for Matthew <laughs> and just talking about the destruction of the temple. I think that the Bible is something that it, it's complicated, right? <laughs> it's, but there's so much in there that is so little addressed, especially for stories of women being really strong. And uh, it's so... It's, it's just so important and so valuable to me. And I think a lot of times in churches, women's issues get ignored or swept under the rug. I have talked to well than more than one woman who has described an experience where she had a women's issue and it was not addressed by the church or supported by the church and was kind of just buried. So uh, I think sort of pointing out these stories from the Bible, like a hemorrhaging woman, you know, that women's bodies are sacred and holy and equal and valued and that they are important and strong. And I feel like I'm blathering now, <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, yeah, no, it's, it's real. And we don't think about the Bible as a source of these things for women. And often women are kind of sold flowery devotionals, you know, um, with certain scriptures on them. And the, the Bible is filled with gritty, real tales of honest women's experiences. And they're shrouded in mystery, but if we hear them more, if we hear more intelligent people uh, wrestling with them, 
exploring them, I think it can be amazing. Um, so I am thrilled that you are doing this and I hope we see more things like this. Yeah, I think it's really helpful to just think in our talks about the Bible in general to recognize that it's not rated G like everyone wants you to think it is. Oh no. That it's absolutely gritty at times and it deals with absolute tragic circumstances and if we're deeply engaging, that might help us to deal with our own. Too often, we just glaze over all those, you know, verses that end up on a keychain um, <laughs> or on the front of a devotional or on your bookmark. And we say, well, that's what the Bible says. Well, the Bible says a lot more than that. And so I, I think, Ashley, the women's lectionary is going to give us as like, spiritual leaders and the church generally, and maybe just people, people more generally than even in the church, tools to be able to engage in their own stories in a deeper way. And I'm, I really am excited about that. I really hope so. Um, one of the things that I talk about a lot in the book is sexual violence. And there is just so much sexual violence in the Bible. And we're at a time where we really need to talk about sexual violence. You know, we've seen this with the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement. And there are so many people in our congregations that have experienced sexual violence, uh, rape, and, you know, other kinds of abuse. And like, we have stories about that in the Bible and they're not pretty stories, but pastors can use these to say like, the Bible reflects this too. And people may or may not have responded well to it, but how can we respond better? And this is something that God cares about and that we as a church need to care about. Amen. Also, uh, I'd like to just do a whole episode sometime on uh, Proverbs 31. <laughs> <laughs> would you care to explain that joke uh sure so um the late great amazing rachel held evans it was the first person to really introduce me to this notion of proverbs 31 i proverbs 31 is a beautiful piece of hebrew poetry from proverbs that um talks about this woman who gets up before dawn, who loves her family. She makes money. She does it all. And uh, for centuries, it was used or has been used as sort of like a, a motivational, like, you can be this woman. You just got to pray harder kind of thing. And um, there's some really great work out there. Like I said, Rachel Held Evans has a wonderful bit of lots of writing on this that I, I could talk about it for for quite a while. Oh, yeah. <laughs> John is saying I should mention the... Uh, uh, the Eshet Hayil, which is uh, how it's um, described, which means Hebrew for woman of valor. And um, this is, again, I really would like to do a whole whole episode on this. So we won't go too far into it, but uh, it's, it's really and truly a beautiful a hymn of praise for women generally and just all that we do. If you have any thoughts on that, Ashley, I would... <laughs> Yeah, well, it's funny because it's the um, passage that's so often pulled out for a, a women's Sunday, you know, for Mother's Day in particular. Like, this is the one woman in the Bible that we take time to talk about. But if you get into it, it's very weird. I mean, she's doing way too many things, and she takes on this kind of mythical superhero, like, very strong. And um, yeah, I think it's something that we've seen um, pieces taken out of. Like even for Christians, if you aren't familiar with Proverbs 31, I guarantee you have heard verses of it um, because it's the kind of thing that ends up on women's devotionals. But um, 
taken as a whole, it's a lot more powerful and stranger than its individual pieces. Absolutely. Well, do we have any more questions for Ashley today before we start winding down? I think we at the very least have our one weekly question that we try to ask everybody every week. And that is, Ashley, what is giving you life this week? What is getting you up? What is helping you make it through the day? What is, um, you know, helping you get to the next level? You know, what, what of any of these things is, is sort of a central piece that is really giving you encouragement? Yeah, I have a couple things that are really giving me life right now. The first is the public library. Um, We did not have access to our public library for several months, and now we have it again in curbside, and I am so glad to be able to be getting books from them and the electronic resources. Like, I love reading novels, and I was just so sad that I didn't have access to the library. So the library is giving me life this week. And the second is um, my online community of women who preach. I'm connected with a lot of women preachers on Twitter and on Facebook, and we really encourage each other. And so I'm grateful to all of them. That is wonderful. That connection is so, (laughs) uh, so powerful in this time of isolation. Uh, What about you guys? What are you grateful for? Or um, what's giving you life right now? Today is uh, a beautiful day where I have uh, gotten the chance to sit outside for just an hour and do nothing. And it was early and it was cool and it was awesome. And I'm just- now, cor- correct me if I'm wrong, Ashley. That sounds like a very Quaker thing to do. <laughs> I would also like to have Ashley back to talk about Quakers if I haven't. Already. I think I did say that. All right, Garrett, what's going on? What's giving you life? Well, if this picks up uh, just being out by the beach, um, which is contributed to my uh, unstable internet connection and lack of clarity uh, on top of my other uh, regular lack of clarity uh, issues. But um, just being in nature uh, and connected to to that form of nature is very, uh, speaks to my soul uh, very much. So it's been a very meditative week for me. Yeah, I really connect always with, you know, the theme of being in nature and being at the beach and hearing the waves or being in the mountains. And and my um, thing that's giving me life kind of piggybacks off of that. I'm getting really into American transcendentalism right now. I'm reading a lot of Emerson. I've got like a you look so surprised, Sarah. Why do you look so surprised? Didn't I tell you about this? No, you haven't aware of it. Y'all should probably talk since you're, you know, married. Yeah. You would, you would think, but you'd be surprised the number of conversations married couples don't have and just assume that we know that about each other. I'm surprised it wasn't so thorough uh, of a conversation. <laughs> that was the best joke about transcendental. Get out. Get out right now, Garrett. <laughs> Uh, no, we have talked about uh, John's recent uh, emergent or recent interest, renewed interest, we'll call it, in uh, transcendental poetry and writing, because I said that we should just move to the woods and I will paint big transcendental style paintings of mountains and trees and he can write Thoreau, Emerson, Walden. I'll be very thorough about my American transcendental okay, writing. Well, when you do it, it's not as funny as when Garrett does it. Yeah, you, you really need to take a twice. Come on, you, you really need to take the path less taken, John. You immerse um, in yourself in. <laughs> I don't know. 
you know, find a pond, build a cabin. <laughs> that's that's the long-term plan is just to disappear into the woods and start a retreat center that's like part secret martial arts dojo, part, you know, deep, meditative, very zen painting studio. Do you guys know that Thoreau's mom still did his laundry when he was hiding out at the cabin? Yeah. <laughs> you know, back to that supernatural uh, version of, of women, you know, in, <laughs> in Proverbs. Um, <laughs> so, Sarah, what's giving you life you haven't shared yet? Uh, yeah, I actually picked up a paintbrush and started painting this week. So on that transcendental painting, it was not that good. It was kind of... A... It was really good. Don't let her lie to you. Well, we're redoing our bathroom because my, I don't know, anxiety has led me to be really productive lately. <laughs> so there's that. But overall, things are great. So Ashley, if people want to follow your work, um, it, where can they find you? Where can they uh, reach out to you, follow you, whatever you're comfortable with? Sure. Uh, my Twitter is Ashley M. Wilcox, and that's my website too, AshleyMWilcox.com. And I have a Facebook author page. It's author Ashley M. Wilcox. And if you want to um, find out more about the Women's Lectionary, it's under the hashtag The Women's Lectionary, and it's available for pre-order through Westminster John Knox Press or on Amazon or Barnes & Noble through a variety of sources. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I can't wait to have that copy in my hand to put it on the bookshelf next to our commentaries, other commentaries. And um, yeah, we uh, are so grateful to you for being here with us today. Um, anything else you want to say before we wrap up? I think that's all. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thanks again. All right, everybody have a good week. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logosish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on this podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or to suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on our various social media platforms, including Twitter uh, at logosishpod. Please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast. That helps us to get the word out about all the stuff that we are working on. And we'd love to hear your feedback as well. Have a wonderful week. <laughs>